All right, um, just to kind of set the stage here, we have been going through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, last week, we saw that God rejected the first king of Israel. His name is Saul. Uh, he was chosen by God, but he did not have a heart after God. In fact, God said that Saul's heart was full of rebellion and presumption. So Saul was rejected. And now, in our scripture today, the prophet Samuel is told to anoint a man after God's own heart, the, the next king of Israel, and his name is King David. But at this point, David is just a young boy. All right, so here we go. First Samuel. Oh, and by the way, here's the outline. I'm going to divide the chapter into three parts. They all begin with the same letter, and you get a symbol to go with each part. All right, so it's about the heart, the Holy Spirit, and a harp. Yeah, nice. Yeah, okay. So those of you who, if if you're extremely bored. During the sermon, you can at least draw these on your bulletin, okay? So let's talk about the heart. The Lord said to Samuel, the prophet Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, don't you hate it when the preacher stops at the first verse and he does a little preaching, but i got to just kind of pause right here. A um, little quick lesson. There's absolutely a time to grieve a loss. All right? Here, uh, Samuel anointed Saul... He was for Saul. He was Saul's friend. He, uh, he saw Saul with his victories. Uh, he saw God confirm that Saul was the, the, the king. But Saul went bad. And God rejected Saul. And it's sad. Samuel and Saul parted ways. And it says that they never saw each other until Samuel's death. And Samuel is grieving over the loss of Saul. But God says, there's a time to grieve, and then there's a time to shake it off and move on. It's time to stop grieving. I'm going to do a new thing. You know, um, I, I remember meeting with a, a guy when I was pastoring in, in Wisconsin, he came to the church, his family came to the church, and he said, could I, could I buy you lunch? I'm like, sure. Um, so <laughs> we went to lunch, and he told me his whole story, and um, bottom line, he said, uh, they've tried all these different churches, and they just can't find one. And the way he put it was his wife just can't find one like their, their church back home in Indianapolis. Indiana, and every time she goes to church, she just is so grieving 
that she, she can't go back to that church and she can't find a church like this miraculous church in Indiana. Um, and I said, oh, that's, that's understandable. It may take some time. How many months have you been looking? And he said, five years. Now, there's a time to grieve. There's a time to miss. You know, though I think over time, the memory can be more romantic than the reality. I didn't say this, but I wanted to ask, at what point does legitimate grief turn into illegitimate self-pity? Where we're just wasting our, our lives. God says to Samuel, it's time to move on. All right, Stop grieving. It's time to move on. And I don't mean to be cold and crass because I don't presume to want to tell you when that point uh, of grief should stop. But there is a point where you need to say, okay, what is God doing new? And let's get on board with that. All right? So go to Bethlehem. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. You're anointing a new king. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Because when the pastor shows up unexpectedly, there's usually something to worry about, right? I may just be showing up for lunch, though. And he said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, what's Samuel's experience in anointing kings so far? Well, he's anointed one, Saul, and he was a head taller than everybody else, and he was extremely handsome. So here's this this oldest, probably stunningly handsome man, and he thinks, this is a no-brainer. He's the man. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Same word that was used in the previous chapter. He rejected Saul and he's rejected Eliab. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't be fooled by externals. God is after the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, 
are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. In other words, no, they're all here. Oh, oh, (laughs) you must mean David. I didn't even call him here. Why would I call David? He's he's, he's watching the sheep. Somebody's got to watch the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So pause right here. First point that we want to see is that God looks to the heart. Not on the outward appearance, but to the heart. Now, let me give you a quick theology of the heart of man. All right? You know how when we say, oh, he's got such a good heart, or they have a good heart. When God looks down at humans in general, what does he see? Not good hearts. Okay? Um, Ephesians 2.1, this is talking about unsaved man. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You, before you were a believer, you were spiritually dead. You had a dead heart. Okay? Uh, before God flooded the world, God looks down on the world. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right? This is total depravity of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said this about the heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So I don't want you to think that Saul had an evil heart on his own. It's true that he did, but I don't want you to think he had an evil heart, but David was born with a good heart. No. The only way to get a good and godly heart is how? Heart transplant. And that's what God does. Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So David has a good and godly heart, not because he was born that way, but because God gave him a heart transplant. Just like in this era, this dispensation, it's the same back then. If anybody loves God, it's because God has regenerated us, given us new life, given us a new heart. That's what's going on with David. But the main point that I want us to get is this. While Saul and Eliab may have looked impressive on the outside, what matters to God and what should matter to us is what's going on on the inside, in our hearts, right? Um, 
You know, we, we deal with a lot of college students. We have a lot of college students in our own house, don't we? Yeah. And um, we, at Moody, we're always being asked, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, can you come and talk about what to look for in a spouse? How many talks have we done on that? Right. So I always pull this verse out. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Don't be fooled by the outside. Now, I I got both beauty and godliness wrapped in one package, right? Yeah, right? Huh? Right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And you would say the same too, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, it's not that funny, all right? I've told you this story before, though. Uh, I know a pastor who, uh, he went to Moody Bible Institute. He met his wife there. They got married. And he would wake up in the middle of the night hearing, her, hearing demons speak out of her. And she went insane and killed herself. Um, so, Josh, check for demons before you marry a girl from Moody Bible Institute, Okay. Yeah. We are so easily distracted, especially in our culture, by the outer package. Right? God says, I'm not impressed with the outside. I'm looking at the inside. Um, did any of you happen to turn on TV yesterday and see the the Little League World Series. Any of you see that? You see that? No. Um, it was 12-year-olds, uh, North Carolina, playing Texas. And uh, North Carolina was winning 5 to nothing. And I'm kind of pulling for Texas because they're flooded. Right? <laughs> right? That's, I don't know anybody on any team, but, you know, I'm going for the underdog. And they're losing, and um, this little kid, his last name was Wiggly. Freckles, kind of chubby little guy, red hair, Wiggles, they call him. And um, he gets up to the plate, and you know, if you're a Little League coach, they tell you if you're little, really squat down so the, the strike zone is about that big. And they threw the ball, and he took a swing, and he missed. And everybody kind of like <laughs> wiggles. Threw another ball. Boom! Hit it out of the park. Two runs. Because there was a guy on base. Wiggles. Way to go, Wiggs. Right? <laughs> Don't look on the outer appearance. God may surprise you with what's going on on the inside. Right? Do you all remember who that is? Who is that? Susan Boyle, right? And then, you know who this is? Paul Potts. Um, They both appeared not on America's Got Talent, but England's Got Talent. And when they walked out on the stage, you could see the judges laughing. 
And the crowd was like, what's this all about? And they were asked, you know, Simon says, what do you, what do you want to do? I'd like to sing opera. <laughs> you know. So then the music starts. And this beautiful operatic music comes out of their mouths. The judges are crying. It ends in a standing ovation. Great lesson. Don't be too impressed or don't be not impressed with the outer package. You know, I happen to know that every single one of you in this room who is a Christian, I happen to know you have an amazing gift, an amazing talent. How do I know that? Because God promises to each, to each person in the body of Christ, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's, that's referring to a spiritual gift. Every one of us has at least one amazing spiritual gift. Now, one reason you may not know about it is because it's not for you. It's for the church. It's for the common good. It's for the rest of us to be blessed by. Be careful, though, that you don't look at somebody at this church or another church and judge them by their external appearance. In fact, can I challenge us? Can can we make this year a year to help others find and develop their gifts? Right? Maybe it's not musical. Maybe it's not a speaking gift. Those are the most visible ones. But there are people who have gifts of compassion that are untapped. Gifts of wisdom that are untapped. Right? I, I mentioned uh, Elizabeth had a, she put on a conference at Moody and brought in Emily Colson who's Chuck Colson's daughter. And Emily Colson has a, an autistic son named Max. And he's in his 20s, I think, right now. And um, Max's vocabulary is very limited. His cognitive ability is very limited. But you know what kind of gift he has? I would call it the gift of joy. He stands in the back of church because when the music starts, he can't contain himself, and he jumps up and down, and he runs through the hallway, and he praises the Lord with all his heart. And rather than people going, that's strange, they love Max, because he brings joy. What's your gift? Maybe hidden in a package that on the outside... Nobody would know. But on the inside is amazing. Maybe it's the gift of joy. Maybe it's the gift of compassion. Maybe it's the gift of pulled pork. (laughs) With some hot sauce, right? Now, one more thing before we move on. David is a type of Jesus. 
right? David foreshadows his great 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 grandson, Jesus. David was not impressive on the outside compared to his big brother. Now, he, we're told he was handsome. Okay. David at least was handsome. Do we have any physical description of Jesus? Can you think of any place where it describes him physically? What? Close. There's no New Testament description. But there's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him, the, the, the Christ grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I don't know that this means Jesus was ugly, but it does mean there was nothing outstanding about him physically. I wonder if our society would just reject him on looks alone. But the point is, it's not about the external. Similarly to this, worldly people reject the true gospel because it's not attractive. It's not impressive enough. You know, the Apostle Paul um, writes 1 Corinthians because um, his preaching of the gospel was being criticized. And the Corinthians were saying, Paul, here's what you need to do. It says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So Paul, spice it up with some miracles. The Jews are after, uh, after signs. So you're an apostle, do the magic show. Do some miracles. And the Greeks, they're into wisdom and philosophy, right? I mean, you, you know, you know, you've studied Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and the Stoics and the Epicureans and just throw some philosophy in there to impress them. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. My main message, he says, is Christ crucified. It's about God becoming a man and having nails pierce his arms and his feet and die under the wrath of God as our substitute. If that's not the main message, and there's a lot of things related to that, but it's so easy to get off on social action being the gospel, or healing being the gospel, or all these things, but Christ crucified is the gospel. 
You know what? That doesn't sell, though. So the advice from the church growth people is, come on, if we're going to bring people in, have a, a message that's going to impress them. Paul would say, my message has always been Christ and him crucified. Are you on board with that? All right. Let's move on to the second major point, the Holy Spirit. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, it's interesting that this is the ESV, and it says a harmful spirit. Every other translation um, translates it an evil spirit. An evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. So, so what's going on here with the Holy Spirit? Is this, is this teaching you can lose the Holy Spirit and lose your salvation? No, I don't think it is teaching that. Now, it might be helpful to define some terms related to the Holy Spirit. Right? Let's talk about indwelling, empowering, and endearing. All different functions of the Holy Spirit. Okay? When a person trusts in Christ, and this is true, this has always been true, Old Testament, New Testament, when true faith is placed in God, and specifically in Christ, because he was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells the heart. And you're sealed. In other words, if you're truly saved, the Holy Spirit's not leaving. Right? We see that in Ephesians. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When did this happen? When you heard the word of truth and believed. At the point of true belief, that's when the Holy Spirit is hermetically sealed inside of you. Now, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, and you can quench the Holy Spirit, Okay, as Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You can grieve him, but you can't make him leave. Right? And I, I picture that as being filled with the Holy Spirit, a balloon full of air, and when you grieve him, it shrinks him down, but he's not going anywhere. Okay. Now, um, you say, didn't the Holy Spirit work differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament? And my answer is a clear, definitive yes and no. Okay? 
Yes, in that I believe from the day of Pentecost on, the normative experience of a believer with the Holy Spirit is a fuller experience than before the day of Pentecost. All right? We have a greater experience with the Holy Spirit. So, so there is a, a, a quantitative difference. But when it comes to salvation, there is no difference. In other words, it, it's not like before the church, you could lose your salvation and the Holy Spirit, but now that Jesus has come, you can't lose your salvation and the Holy Spirit. Salvation has always been by faith alone, and saving faith has always resulted in the Holy Spirit indwelling and sealing a believer. All right, He doesn't leave. You say, well, how do you explain Saul? Well, two weeks ago, we spent an entire sermon asking the question, was Saul saved? And my answer is no. Truly saved people don't spend their life trying to murder their own son, try to murder David, actually murdering 85 priests and their families. They aren't insanely jealous of the next king, and they don't ban witchcraft and then go to a witch to talk to Samuel, who has died. Right? But the Holy Spirit came upon Saul and changed his heart, and he even prophesied. But now he's left. Well, here we have a case, like with Samson, where the Holy Spirit empowers a non-saved person, but had never regenerated or indwelt or sealed that non-saved person. And you say, well, is there any New Testament example of the Holy Spirit empowering somebody, but they're not really saved? You ever seen this one? Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, Saul prophesied, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, well, I once knew you, but you lost it. No, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here, they're never saved. I never knew you. Yet they did miracles and prophesied in the name of Jesus. Is it possible that the false teachers on TV who are not saved, who are in it just for the money, might still be used by God to save souls? I think that's what's going on here. Okay. Everybody who's truly indwelt with the Holy Spirit is empowered in some way. David was empowered to be king. We are empowered to exercise our spiritual gifts. But not everyone who has experienced some empowerment from the Holy Spirit is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That may be hard to get your head around, but that's how I piece it together. That's why people who place a lot of confidence in their spiritual gifts to assure them of their salvation, but they don't show much fruit, might be deceived. 
I don't care if you can preach. I don't care if God even does a miracle through you, but you're a jerk. There's no love, joy, peace, patience. And you're, you're banking your salvation on the miracle that God did through you? It's not about your gifts. It's about the fruit that he produces. Right? Now, what about Psalm 51? So, so here we're making a distinction between indwelling and empowering. What about Psalm 51 where David says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Doesn't that show that you can lose your salvation and lose the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think this is talking about losing your salvation or losing the indwelling Holy Spirit or even losing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I think there's another aspect of the Holy Spirit that this is talking about. And I'm simply going to call that the endearing of the Holy Spirit. The closeness, the the comforting, joy-producing, affectionate work of the Holy Spirit. He may be sealed in you, but maybe you're going through a time of quenching the Holy Spirit, or God is simply putting you through a dry period where he's testing you. Right? In other words, um, I don't think David is saying, oh, give me my salvation back. In fact, I think he's saying, give me the joy of my salvation back, which is the very next verse. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So friends, my prayer for all of us is that we are indwelt and empowered and endeared by the Holy Spirit. All right? One last thing. Oh, the harp. There we go. All right. See, I'm, I'm looking for a, a, a heading, and I'm like, well, there, there it is, the harp. And Saul's servants said to him, to Saul, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. And here, um, NIV, Holman, NASB, King James, New King James, all say an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Okay. Now, how do we explain an evil spirit from God? Well, I think this is referring to God as the ultimate sovereign one who is sovereign over even Satan. Remember, in the book of Job, before Job can attack, or before Satan can attack Job, he needs permission from God. Even the demonic realm is under the sovereign control of God. Now, in Job's case, God permitted Satan to attack Job, and that was to refine a righteous man. In Saul's case, God permits this to happen, and it's part of what what theologians call judicial hardening. God is handing him over to his own sin to the point where his mind is so deluded 
that he embraces even the demonic. We see this in 2 Thessalonians. The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, right, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So the idea here is this lawless one is going to come, but he's going to do miracles and wonders. In other words, masses of people are going to think that this is a true religious leader. How could they be so deceived, though? And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They've gone after a false gospel. They don't love the true gospel that is about a bloody cross. That's not, a, that's not impressive enough. So they, they've rejected that. They don't love that. They love some other gospel. Right? And because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, what's going to happen? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They, they buy this guy's message. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, even God allowing the Antichrist to rise up and false teachers to rise up and cult leaders to rise up. It's a part of the judicial hardening where he's handing people over who have rejected the truth. He's handing them over to their own depraved mind and falsehood. So here I believe we have a case where Saul has rejected God, so God is handing him over, and he is tormented by this evil spirit. So what's the solution to this? So the, the advisors say to Saul, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, the harp. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his, uh, son, uh, his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now what are we to do with this? What are we to make of David's music being the thing that chased the demons away. I wrote a song. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? 
It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing. Hallelujah. I didn't write that. I would never rhyme hallelujah with do ya. But this song does what many people do. It makes the harp playing into some magical, mystical thing. Be careful that you don't read too much into this rather obscure historical narrative. This, this is, we could start a cult. Satanic deliverance through harp playing. Exorcism through the guitar. What's going on here? I think the key is this. David is a type of who? Jesus. Just as David has authority over Saul's demons... And his authority is what cast them out. Jesus has authority over Satan and his demons to a grander extent. And he has defeated Satan. Where do we see that? Well, Colossians 2.15 says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, it's referring to to demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Where did Jesus triumph over Satan and put him to open shame? Verse 13 of chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, there's that Holy Spirit again, together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, where were we forgiven? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So um, here's what Satan does. Okay, in... In, in the Saul example, he actually comes upon Saul and torments him, and he's going insane. All right, There's a, a physical, mental attack. But that's small potatoes compared to what Satan can do to every one of us. He's the accuser of the brethren. His biggest attack is to say, you are a sinner. You are a hypocrite. You deserve to go to hell. And guess what? We do. Unless somebody can legitimately pay the price that we've earned. Unless somebody can legally and legitimately go to hell for us, Satan is our biggest enemy. He set This, he set aside what? The record of debt that stood against us in its legal demands. This he set aside, how? Nailing it to the 
There's the cross again. Your biggest problem is you deserve to go to hell. Legitimately. And Satan, first of all, Satan's strategy is to keep you away from that truth so you go through your whole life and you don't, you're not even bothered about your sin. But then once you are convicted of your sin and he pounces on you and accuses you and condemns you, guess what? Christ defeated Satan and his accusations. And he took your debt that stood against you and it was nailed to the cross and fully paid for when he shed his blood and died. That's what the harp is pointing to. Amen? All right. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the consistency of it. Thank you that Christ is the key that interprets it. And thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. Lord, I do pray that we would be indwelt and empowered and endeared with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray that you would give us the, uh, the know-how and the ability and the desire to fight against Satan's accusations and claim the victory that we have in the cross. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.